I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Veronica Stoller of the Spagna Market in Soho on the show today. Hello, how are you? I'm great, Lovey. How are you? Great to see you. Thank you for having me. So you are from Florida. Yep. Born and, and almost born and raised, I would say. And you, uh, what were you studying in college? How did you? Well, I started going to the University of Central Florida, and I was studying psychology with sort of a, a sub focus on uh, American Sign Language interpreting for the deaf, and. Um, and graduated in 2007, and you know that was that was about it at that time. And what was the job market like? Well, it was interesting. Um, I had always thought, you know, you do the whole college thing, and you graduate, and you get this great job, and it was just sort of like, okay, you did all the right steps. But it was sort of like the start towards the middle of the recession, and that was not exactly what was happening. And so. During college, I had, you know, the typical route of college jobs. And one of the ones that kind of stuck the most was getting an opportunity to work at Whole Foods Market in uh, Winter Park, Florida, which at the time and probably still was one of the smallest companies, uh, smallest stores really in the entire corporation. So that was a really, it was a pretty interesting experience at the time. And they had wine? They did. In Florida, it's it's a little bit different than in New York City. And in Florida, you can actually have wine. You can't have spirits, but you can have wine inside of grocery stores or um, even, you know, I guess, convenience stores and things like that. And so in that market, which was 19,000 square feet, it was actually the little tiny section in the back with cheese and specialty wines and beers and all these kind of wonderful products back there. So was that kind of your introduction to the the wine retail side? It was. It was. Um I'd always had this sort of appreciation for food and grew up in a house with a lot of organic uh, food and home cooking and not really ordering out and just sort of like appreciation for like the art of creating meals. And that really was something that the customers in the store had as well. And so you'd sit there and you'd talk with customers and you'd see all the different foods and produce and meats and things and there'd be bottles of wine kind of tucked in and you just get excited. You would talk to them and you'd say, oh, cool, okay, you're making this tonight and this is going to go with that. And there was just sort of like this natural dialogue that would happen and it was a lot of fun. It was really, it was educational for me and inspiring really in the same time, so... And at some point, you decided to make the move outside of Florida. Yeah, I did. I uh, So I had worked for a little bit in um, natural medicine, uh, doing some holistic chiropractic uh, assisting work. And that was, it was really, it was an incredible experience. It was eye-opening experience. Um, if I wanted to continue with that, I would have had to go the medical route and gone to medical school, which at the time wasn't something I wanted to do. I just had finished school. And uh, interpreting was something that was interesting as well, but I just felt like I needed to move out of Florida. I had to get a little bit of a bigger perspective. And I felt like there was, there was something else out there. There was more to life than that and more culture or something. And so I moved in 2008 to Washington, D.C., um, and, and why did you pick DC? Well, it was kind of interesting. Uh, during college, I had gone a bunch for conferences and lectures and, you know, protests and things like that. And I had a lot of friends that had moved to New York City, but it just seemed a little bit too big for me. It seemed a little bit too crazy and scary. And I knew so many people that had come up here and worked for six months and blew their savings and came back to Florida with a tail between their legs. And I knew that that wasn't going to be me. I wanted to get up here and I wanted to make 
progress as opposed to backstrapping. And so DC seemed like a, kind of like the best of both worlds. It was like halfway there, but it was a city that I was sort of familiar with. And I thought that that would be a great place to kind of get a little bit of a first step outside of Florida. Um, and that was 2008. And I was sure that I was going to get up to DC and I was going to work in nonprofit and it was going to be this amazing step and making change. And that was not the case at all. So I ended up doing resumes and sending out everything for three weeks and nothing was happening. And luckily I was still able to transfer with Whole Foods, with the company, um, to their P Street store. In, oh, because they had a store in DC. Yeah. They have a couple. They had three, I believe, at the time. Um, and the one that was on P Street was in DuPont Circle. It was downtown. And it, at the time, was one of their busiest stores in the entire company. And for sure, their wine section, their wine department, it was the busiest, if not the second busiest, in the whole company. It was it was outstanding, actually. It was a lot of work. But um, at the time, they were doing you know over $100,000 a week in sales of wine alone. That seems like a lot. It was a lot. And especially if you consider the fact that the, in D.C., you had the store inside. The, the wine store was inside the store. Um, you couldn't have anything above 15% alcohol. So you couldn't have the Madeiras and the Ports and the Sherrys. But it was, it was strictly wine. Um, but it was a lot of work. It was maybe four people total that were focusing on wine. I mean, you had the sort of support of the entire specialty section, but I mean, you're talking taking little push carts and 20 cases of wine and just running as fast as you can back and forth throughout the store and 30 second recommendations. And just the, the energy of it was really entrancing in a lot of ways. And it was great, but it was just, it was backbreaking work. You'd come home with like slices and, you know, broken fingers and all this other stuff. It was just nuts, but it was great. And um, that's really where I first got the, the, Biggest focus, I suppose, and the biggest pleasure, really, with wine. Um, one of my first days there, you know, I finally show up wearing like a white shirt and like jeans, and I just got totally destroyed and dirty and gross. And they just handed me two books at the end of my day, and it was uh, the Wine Bible and the Cheese Primer, which together collectively are like this like mecca of information, which is maybe a little bit outdated at this point. But at the time, it was a great foundation. And so I'm sitting on the train, just going through and reading everything and kind of getting the hang for it and sort of. Being in a store that was that busy, you were trying things and sampling things all the time and visiting with winemakers. And I just sort of, I loved it. And I thought I was pretty good at it too. And I was good at tasting and getting feedback and, you know, writing up sign talkers and having relationships with customers. And so I basically pretty shortly became, at the time there was a wine buyer there, her name was Cara, and I became one of her assistants. And that was pretty eye-opening because you know, you were building displays and you were doing so much. I think, I'm trying to think of how many wines we had, and it might have been around maybe 200 or so. I, it's it's hard to remember now, but it was it was a really eye-opening experience to see so much and everything so fast and go through the inaugurations of Obama and just to see D.C. culture from that side. It was it was interesting. Well, yeah. What was the Obama inauguration the first time around like in D.C.? Oh, man. Well, so the night... This is actually going to be funny. The night that he um, he won the election, you know, there was just like the static energy in the city. It just everyone was sort of like on edge. They didn't know quite what to do. And we had been ordering a lot of sparkling wine and a lot of um, just extra stuff for the store. We had huge displays of Gruet and all this other stuff. And it was it was crazy. The the store just people started buying almost like celebratory bottles, like preemptively. And so we had this one little wine chiller. We didn't have any cold wine in the store. We didn't have any fridges for it. But we had this one little chiller that maybe would have fit six bottles or something. And there's 12 and they're doing this pyramid and people are just like, just stocking up for the apocalypse, you know, for better or for worse. If it was, you know, Obama was going to win, if he wasn't going to win, the city was going to be drunk and it was going to be a fun time. And so that was great. And I think I ended up buying some really like stupid Prosecco that night. And we ended up going, my roommates and I, we ended up going downtown. And the minute, so keep in mind that the trains stop at midnight in DC. And I think the election was called at like 11 something. And so the minute that it was called, just you could, from inside buildings, just hear screams and shouts and people were just going absolutely out of their minds. And we, you know, we had basically like beat it out of there, get on the train to go home. And people were just practically doing cartwheels on the trains. I mean, they were just like shouting and jumping and it was just like joyous. The city just broke out. And that energy was, it was pretty contagious. The whole city just felt really uplifted for a while, including to the inauguration. I mean, then you just have so many people in the city and just the, the 
streets were flooded with people and and empty Starbucks cups and garbage and all this stuff. And it was it was incredible. It was a really cool time to be in that city at that time. And working in DuPont Circle, did you get a lot of a government audience, government employees? We and- did, yeah. Um, so the story would be open uh, until about 11 p.m. And the wines... The wine sales had to stop around ten. Oh, because you were inside the store, exactly. but you had different hours. Yeah, we sometimes we we would do like like crime scene tape around the wine section. People really didn't understand what was going on. We're like, no, if you get up to the registry, you can't buy this wine. I'm sorry, and they just didn't get it. But it was probably you know like the eleven thirty, twelve thirty crowd, and you'd start to see like senators coming in and buying groceries, and the like sort of like security people behind them, and and there'd be this buzz around the store like celebrities, and of course you'd see them, and you're looking at them and going, okay, well this is great, but who are you? You know, it, and it was funny because people would just be like peeking around the shelves, and it was just it was like celebrities for DC, which was kind of cool, and. uh I think actually I helped one of the senators get some sparkling wine, which actually probably was at the time like the crew ate. Uh, but it was uh, it was it was fun. It was a really neat time to be there for sure. And so you eventually did make the move to to New York, and how did that come about? I did. So I was in D.C. for a year, and at the time I was learning so much. I was tasting a lot. I was getting you know my foundation. I knew how to kind of work with customers. I knew how to sort of talk to them and and predict their needs. But for me personally, that city wasn't the end-all be-all. And in a lot of ways, it was sort of, at the time, I think a lot of things have changed now. But at the time, there, was, there wasn't quite the celebratory wine culture um, and the sort of like bon vivant style wine culture that there is here that I love. There, it was very kind of cold and very closed off. And there were wine bars, but it was like, this is the wine you will drink. And, and it wasn't exciting. And so I found out they were opening uh, a wine store up here with a company in, in New York. And I just emailed everybody that I knew. I was like, okay, you know, the people, they probably were like stocking shelves. And I emailed them and I was like, God, this is me. I'm, I'm going to come up here. I want to be in the store. I want to open the store, like get me up here. And I don't know, maybe it worked. I guess it did. And I finally got an interview and I, I moved up here in the summer of 2009 to open that store, which is on the Upper West Side, 97th Street in Columbus. And what was that experience like? Well, <laughs> Not exactly what I expected. Is that true? Yeah. Um, I had worked, obviously, in the company in a few different regions. Yeah. And New York City is New York City. It's a whole different ballgame up here. And no matter how much you have sort of thought that you knew or thought that you could handle, there's going to be things that are thrown your way. And that's just the nature of the city. So moving up here and this, the store probably had room for a little over a thousand selections. And it just – it was – for a company that only had one wine store in the city, they just their capacity for understanding barcodes and item numbers and boxes and all and storage, it was just it was it was kind of crazy. Um, and I remember like our first days, we were getting three hundred to five hundred cases of wine coming in, flooding in, and just being deposited on our floor on the shop floor. And which you know, luckily there were no customers, but you're looking around and you're like, oh my god, like what? Okay, so uh, you know, I guess this is what we're doing, and it was. It was a little disheartening at first because, at least in in DC, I had worked. We had had some pretty cool wines. We had had some like Bobby Ketcher stuff. We had had maybe a little bit of Louis Dresner stuff. We had John David Hedricks, and we so there was these really kind of cool, a little bit kind of quirky wines that were sort of speaking to me a little bit. And then to see some of these just you know like the big brands coming in, and you're just looking at it, and you're like Castle Rock, oh god, like like you're just sort of putting things out, and you're like, okay, well, we'll figure this out. We'll we'll get through it, and we'll see. Um, but it was crazy. We opened the store two weeks early. We were we were running around like crazy. Um, but that was it was definitely a pretty challenging time period in terms of sort of the amount of physical labor and mental and emotional labor and trying to be five different people at the same exact time. And uh, that was interesting. I think one of the things that I loved the most. Um, was we started finally kind of getting through some of the initial slough and we got into getting a lot more like Dresner wines in and it was fun. We actually had a, a staff training with Lee Campbell at the time and she came in and, and it was she was just, we had this conference room and we were all sitting down and she had just this selection of beautiful wines and I was just scribbling notes and just so like not trying not to spit, but you had to spit and it was just really, it was amazing. And then, you know, you just take that energy into the store where people in that area didn't really care about those kind of wines. They they wanted it was a specific niche, and that's so true of New York as a as a whole. Is that depending on where you are, really sort of dictates kind of how your store is going to be selected. You can have a very clear focus, and that's wonderful, and that that can work sometimes. But there's always going to be certain neighborhoods that are kind of going to demand certain products or certain spirits or you know certain prices, and um, and that was for sure something interesting. But 
that store offered me the opportunity to become the Spanish wine buyer, as well as the kosher wine buyer, because it was definitely needed in the neighborhood, and the sake buyer, which was pretty cool, actually. That's pretty diverse. Yeah, it was. It was, you know, I had learned a little bit about sake through a few people in, in Washington, and just sort of the ideas of the rice and the polishing and the styles and the bottle shapes. And, and so it was a neat niche, and I really liked it a lot, but... It's hard sometimes to get people just to go on like a like a whim of faith and trust you and buy this $36 bottle of sake that they might like. But it was a little esoteric. It wasn't quite like, oh, this is going to taste like blueberries and it's going to be sweet. Right, right. It was like, this is going to taste kind of a little murky and a little bit like this sort of like funky. You sort. like rainwater, sir? <laughs> exactly. Like, let me talk you know, to you about this. <laughs> you ever was, just drink straight from a stream? Yeah, it's like it's, you're in the woods. Just be <laughs> with the beaver. <laughs> like, I don't know. It was it was crazy, but it was, it was cool. It was a great opportunity. Opportunity and for me with Spanish wines there, um, I don't know if it was. It, I would say it was really that market, that area, was had a capacity to drink a lot of wine, and their capacity really was to drink a lot of wine that was around like the nine ninety nine price point, like something really approachable, something really good, something that that they could trust, that they could buy three bottles of today and maybe next week, and they just loved it, and that was great. And so the selections, it was a pretty pretty broad area that I had room to play with. And at the time, it was a lot of just maybe more conventional type of things, um, trying to splice in little like little interesting wines from different regions that were maybe like $15.99, like, ooh, like just sort of giving people a little diversity. But um, it, was, it was definitely a big push from my friend Melanie, and she was just like, you know, take this, own it, figure out what people want to drink, keep it in stock, and, and you know, recommend. But I was also recommending wines from all over the world, too. We had French and Spanish. We had everything. Because you're a buyer for those regions, but you're also on the floor helping people. Exactly. No, I mean, it was your job. And of course, you, you wanted to promote what you thought was best for the customer. If they came in and they wanted certain styles or if they were trying certain um, types of grapes and you wanted to give them a whole broad range, it was, it was like your job was to sort of be an ambassador for everything, um, which was great. I liked that part of it a lot. So who did you? Who else did you get to meet on the wholesale side that was coming through the store? Ah, uh, gosh, we dealt with just about everybody. Um, but you know, for me at least, there were there were so many importers. There were so many people coming in. There were winemakers. I got to kind of sit in on a lot of different visits with people from Italy coming over. Um, but actually, it was it was interesting. It was sort of um, around the time in which I was kind of questioning whether or not I. I wanted to stay in the company mm -hmm. and what I wanted to do next. And that's always been a big thing for me is like trying to, you know, if somebody hands you the ball, you want to do the next best thing with it. You know, you want to run, you want to go. And so I was kind of just contemplating where to do, where to go. And um, one of my one of my vendors was in the back room and we were tasting some wines one day. And I was just kind of lamenting that in a lot of ways, just sort of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, there's got to be some way to make more money in this business, but I don't really know what's, you know. And so, and this is about maybe 10 months after I'd moved here, but with the company that I'd been with, it had been five and a half years. So it was really at this kind of critical crux of like, well, there's not other places in this city to go to. And so what am I going to do? And, um, and that was actually a uh, the sales rep for an owner of the company at the time for IPO. And so she was like, well, you know, we might, we might have an opportunity for you. This is Catal. Yeah, this is Catal. She's great. And yeah. And, and so I was like, what do you, what do you mean? You have an opportunity. Like what I wasn't even thinking that this was kind of like a job interview in a sense, but it was. And so, you know, she's like, well, just here, you know, I think that if you really want it and you are hungry and you want to succeed in this business and you have a great personality, I think that you would be great at this. So it took me a little while, and I was thinking about it and kind of asking questions, and I thought, you know, that would be great, actually. Yeah, let's do this. Um, and so I, I told her that I accepted that aspect of it, and um, I had to interview with the other partners in the company, and that was the next step. And who were those people? Mm. So um, at the time, it was uh, her partner, Enrique Ibanez. Okay. And also uh, Michael Wheeler. Oh, he Michael was, Wheeler. Yeah, so he was there too. Um, and he had sort of just recently kind of partnered in with the company um, probably a few months maybe before that. Uh, that, was, that was May, and he probably maybe like the fall previous to that. And so uh, it, it was great. So I had to schedule, schedule interviews with all the different people. And um, I just, I'll never forget, I, I'd sort of heard of Mike Wheeler. I'd kind of like seen him around the business a little bit. But yeah, he's been around a long time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's got like, just, he's legendary in the city. It's great. And so 
he and I were organizing an interview and we we're kind of like calling back and forth and just, I didn't know at the time, but the life of a sales rep is just kind of like on the go doing, you know, things around the city, like whirlwind style. And so he's calling me and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pick you up in a taxi and we're going to go and this is going to be the job. And it was like eight o'clock at night. I'm like, what the heck? I was like, okay. So he picks me up in a taxi and we're speeding downtown and, uh, and he's like, just asking me questions, but in the typical kind of like just really cool Zen way. He's like, yeah, so, you know, you you want to do this thing. You uh, you want to do some sales. And I was like, yes, you know, I do. And and he was like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like, I'll work really hard. He's like, okay, all right. And then that was really it. There was nothing more to it. I was just like, well, I guess I, maybe I got this. I don't know. Like, that was really strange. And so he plops me down. And, and what ended up happening was that night we were going to, I guess, one of the anniversaries of Ten Bells, oh, okay. the wine bar downtown. And I, I'd been there previously, but I didn't know that it was the anniversary. I wasn't that connected. I didn't know anybody in the room. It was in the back room. And, um, you know, Fifi's running around with magnums of Muscadet and all these things are happening. And I'm just sort of just standing there kind of in the dark. And I know Mike Wheeler and I'm still kind of thinking like, am I still on this? Am I still like right. trying to interview? Can I eat the pork over there? <laughs> right, or, like, right, should I just right, be like, more, right. you know, ready for anything? And it's funny because so he he's talking with other people in the room and he kind of just like plops me up next to Joe Dresner. And he's like, just talk to him because at the time, the two of them weren't speaking very much. And so he's like, well, you talk to him. And so I'm like, oh, hello. You know, I know who he is. I've, I've loved his wines. And so we're talking. And but you hadn't met him before. I've never. Yeah, this is my first time ever meeting him. And so looking around the room, we're just sort of making side conversation. You know, it's loud in there and we're talking. And it was really funny because out of nowhere, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, we we're just esoteric conversations. He's like, oh, so yeah, so I'm a cancer. And I'm like, me too. And he's like, you have cancer? And I was like, wait, what? Oh, no. Oh, no, but no, I'm Gemini. I'm a, like, is a, a Gemini? I can't, oh, God. I was like, oh, no. And I think he probably just, he laughed, actually, but he probably thought I was like the biggest idiot because it just came up so avant-garde, like so randomly that I was like... You thought he was like asking you your side at the bar? exactly. Like, Like, it was just, we were talking about nonsense. And I was like, well, I'm on the cusp of the Gemini and the Cancer. I I don't... Oh, gosh. I was like... I just, I think I was like, well, I'm ready to go home. I was just done. I was, that was it. I was like, okay. But he was, he was good spirited about it. Um, And then, yeah, from there I I got the job. He was like, yes, it doesn't have a lot to do with when I was born. It's more about when I die. Yeah, Yeah, no kidding. Unfortunately. God, uh, bless him. But yeah, it was, it was really, it was quite an experience. Um, But yeah, so then I, um, I, I got the job with IPO and this is, this is several years ago and I didn't know a few things at the time that I know now, which is growing up in Florida, it's always hot there. It's always really warm. It never really gets cool. And people are always drinking wine and people don't really leave. It's sort of like, you know, but that's something that happens in New York City is that if you're in this city and you have the ability to leave, you do. The city clears out. And if it's really hot, there's not a lot of people buying wine. There's not a lot of people just generating business either in retail or in restaurants. And I didn't know that. So, you know, I hit the streets in May and then that was one of the record summers where it was 105 degrees, sweltering hot. And you're trying to keep temperature control in your wine and like, you know, you're just melting and your your wines are just like just abused. And it was really, it was interesting. It was an eye-opening experience. I think this was your first time, like, taking the bag around yeah. and going up and down the subway steps. Oh, and... man. And you have to think about it, too. It was 10 months before that I had moved here. And previous to that, my walk to work was going through Central Park every day. I had never really taken a subway. I had never really had to learn the city front and back and side and underground and everything. And so... Because you're going to all these accounts that are in ever. far-flung yeah. destinations. Yeah. But some people have certain routes. And bless them if they have that. But, you know, what I had was just sort of, like, go get them. <laughs> whack and, and that was about it. So I was going to Brooklyn, I was going to Queens, I was going Upper West, downtown, everywhere, trying to sell wine. And it was it was really difficult. I think that people say it's an understatement, I think, when people say that you have to have thick skin. I think that you have to be like impenetrable and just super determined and really patient. Um you would show a wine and, you know, you don't know exactly what the buyer's going through. Maybe this is great and they do like it, but they don't have the space for it or they don't have the money for it. And, you know, a few months go by and then they forget about it. And so it's like all these things, all these factors go into it. And I think the most successful people in the business have been doing it for a really, really long time. Um, But... Did you get a chance to see some of that? Like, did they give you some sales training or take you around at all? A little bit. Um, I think... It, one of the biggest things I think that really kind of like saved my 
my soul in a lot of ways was uh, Mike Wheeler, actually. At the time, he he would sort of see me kind of struggling and, and trying to work really hard, but working really hard in terms of showing wines and schlepping didn't necessarily equal sales. And so he's like, well, you know, come out with me. I'll show you around a little bit. We'll see if we can give you some accounts and build you up a little bit. And so we would actually go on Tuesdays. It was like sort of like a thing. I'd kind of shadow him and I'd see him, you know, I'd see him in the magic. I'd see him doing this. And it was, it was interesting. What was that like? What was his move? Oh, it was, he's, you know, he's been through so many different companies. I think he's what, 30 years in the business here or something. And for him, he would go into these places. They already knew him. They've been buying wine for years from him in in various different companies and they trusted his palate. So, you know, I I was sitting there and I'm going to watch the magic that is sales. And he would talk about his kids to the, you know, the people, to the buyers. He talked about the kids for like 10 minutes. He may or may not even open a wine. He might just sort of like look at a price sheet and be like, yeah, this is like, you know, like 120 on two or five or whatever. And they're like, yeah, just send me five cases for Wednesday. That's fine. And I'm looking at like my jaw, like on the floor, like what, what just happened? Like how? like talking soil type piece. No, no. And I'm sitting here and I'm like reading sheets and I'm like coming in with maps. And, right. and, and somebody actually, um, Alex. The winemaker's grandfather's <laughs> name was Frederick. Yeah. I was like, sell any way possible, you know? And I remember Alex Miranda from David Bowler, he, he, we would always bump into each other at Blue Ribbon Wine Bar. And he would see me, he's like, man, he's like, you know more about these wines than I do. And I'm like, I'm trying. Like, it doesn't make any difference, but I was like, I'm trying. So it was, uh, it was really an eye-opening experience. But um, I do have to say that I, I definitely, I got the crap kicked out of me in terms of just just feeling like doors were being slammed. But I would never take that experience back. In in a lot of ways, A, it makes you more humble. And it makes you, I think, a little bit more... I always thought that I was respectful, but I, I try to be really respectful to the people that come and come to my store, take time out of their day with a producer from some other country to come to my store to show me wine. I think that's I think that's a lot of work. And, and in this... In this city, it's it's so important that you do get that time and those connections. And sometimes you can't go to tastings, but it's just it's. I'm really grateful when people do that. So for me, it was it was eye opening to see the opposite side where people would just not be there for their appointments. I mean, I had one buyer that would specifically we would we would triple confirm that he was going to be there, and I'd bring winemakers, and I would be so embarrassed. I just get there, and they're like, "Oh yeah, he's not here." And I'm like, again, <laughs> you know, and I was like, man, I'm really you know, like, I know that he likes Cab Franc like this is, I, but it just didn't really matter. Um, but the, the city is so opened up to you when you work in sales, this city specifically, there's a culture and an energy and a vibe to, to fine dining and to eating out in restaurants and to incorporating wine into, you know, daily life. And for that, I'm very grateful. For that, I'm really thankful that I was able to to work in sales because I was able to see and eat in more restaurants in this city than I probably ever would have known to do on my own. You got to glimpse some of the... I did, yeah. I mean, dropping bottles off in like Restaurant Danielle. I'm like, oh, you know, it wasn't my account, but it was, it was still like a great opportunity. And just to see chefs and restaurants and food and this, this magnitude, I had I'd always appreciated food and, and always read a lot and always really kind of wanted to travel. But for me, for a long time, until sort of recently, traveling was sort of in the armchair with a bottle of wine. And then my laptop being like, okay, this came from here and this is why, and this is what happened and this is who's making it and and, and those kind of things. And so for me to see the city in that way was was absolutely amazing. And I would never take back the experience as rough as it was to, to learn about the city and to get the perspective of so many different accounts and buyers and wines and, and just the subway system. It was great. It was really cool. But eventually you did leave that world behind. And then what did you do subsequently? Well, there was a little period. Uh, I traveled actually to Japan, which was great. Um, and I did a few just, I guess, kind of survival jobs in a way. Um, just things that kind of paid the bills while you're sort of trying to figure out what would be your next big move. And Fred Dexheimer, actually, he hooked me up with a couple of things uh, in the city, sort of seeing a little bit of the wine bar side, a little bit of like the wine education side, um, but nothing really stuck. And then it was a couple years ago, two years ago now, uh, a friend of mine, Hadley, she works for David Bowler. She was like, you know, I've got this account that's looking for a buyer. And I don't know if you want to do retail again, but you should give it a shot. You should see what they've got. And so, you know, I'm just sort of thinking and weighing out my, my possibilities. And I was like, okay, well, it can't hurt. I'll do this interview. And that was for Despagna. And they had just recently, just a few months before I interviewed, had opened their their wine shop in conjunction with their food shop in Soho, downtown in Manhattan. Because they opened the food market 
first, mm-hmm. and then later they opened a wine. Yeah. Like. Well, the company um, the company itself has been around for a really long time. It's it's over forty years old. So it started in the seventies, um, and in Queens actually too. And so it started there. Um, they were manufacturers of Triso and wholesalers. So they were in the total opposite side of the business. They were wholesaling food and jamon and olive oil and cheeses to restaurants. And in about seven years ago, they opened their uh, food shop in Soho on Broom Street. And that was kind of just sort of like a showroom outpost for maybe chefs if they, you know, ran out of Iberico and they had to like run in and get a leg and like run back. And so that, it became pretty popular. It actually started getting a pretty good following. They had a few things on the menu, a few bocadillo sandwiches and a few like pinchos and things, but they didn't have any seating. So when the spot next door opened up, they uh, they were able to put a really small kind of jewel box size wine store in the front, and the back was able to be opened up for a bit more of communal tables and seating, um, and then a little bit more shelf space as well. Um, and then the wine store opened two years ago now in uh, in January. Oh, so that was right about the time that you were looking mm-hmm. for something. Yeah, it was kind of happenstance in a way. Um, so I actually interviewed with Angelica, who's uh, she's married to Marcos. Uh, they're the owners of Despania, and they are two of the most like wonderful people that you'll ever meet and you'll ever get to work for. And so they were looking for somebody to kind of manage the wine store, but also to to do the buying too. But they also, it was sort of like up in the air and you never know exactly how many jobs or hats you're going to be wearing. And so I interviewed with her and um, and I got the job and I started working there and um, it's been great. It's been a really pretty eye-opening experience. You know, we started with it's only Spain. It's only Spanish wines. There's no Portuguese. Um, and we do have our spirit license as well. So we've got wines, we've got spirits, we've got sherries, cavas, everything. Um, it was probably around 420 or so wines when I started. And I think at the height, it's been around 450, 460. And I've kind of been now just sort of trying to like, just fine tune it a little bit. Get it looks it, like it's a little smaller. Yeah. Trying to really kind of focus, get a lot of the things that just weren't exceptional and didn't need to be there. They were just sort of like filling shelf space and actually get down to the distillation of the things I think that are the most important to our store or for the sake of showcasing Spain to New York City. So So how has that uh, process changed in terms of showcasing Spain? Because you've witnessed um, kind of an interesting time for Spanish wine at Whole Foods and then at Despania Mm -hmm. as a buyer and kind of uh, progression maybe from bigger, bolder, more points-driven things to kind of more smaller imports and smaller production wineries. And where do you kind of find your way amongst that that change? Definitely. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with just this time period. I'm really so thankful that this time period – you know, we have the ability to see so many more wines from Spain. And and that, like, there has to be a certain amount of thanks given to people that pioneered the way mm-hmm. that really gave, you know, room for Spain to be even on the table or on the shelf. Because it didn't really used to be. No, and it wasn't. And, and you still see that now. I still have people daily coming in saying, wow, you have 60 Riojas. Like, I've seen two, you know, like these. And, and so I think in this period, I'm really grateful that there are so many more importers that are a, looking at Spain, and even if their focus isn't necessarily Spanish wines, maybe they've got a lot of French or Italian or German, they're actually still seeing, okay, well, you know, maybe this person knows this person in Spain, and they might have a great vineyard, and let's go check it out and see, hey, this is sort of similar to what my palate is like. And a lot of great wines are finally coming on the market from a lot of just very off-the-beaten-path regions, per se, or just regions that, you know, never really got a lot of attention before, too. Um, the market's still pretty closed in the sense that even the producers that are making a lot of beautiful, amazing wines, their case production is still really small. So we're lucky that we're in New York City, and we're lucky that we're kind of, between California, one of the first outposts for all of these wines coming in. Um, but it is it is interesting, especially in Soho where we are. It's, it's a boutique type of store. It's all hand-selling. Um, you know, somebody comes in, we've got tags on all of the wines and price stickers and, and descriptions, but most often, you know, it's so small, you're so intimate with these people and they come in and they kind of do like a whirl, look around and you sort of see this sort of hesitation and you notice, okay, well, you know, can I help you? Like, do you need some wine? Like, are you looking for something? And so it becomes more of a dialogue than per se coming in and somebody saying, you know, where are the 95 points, you know, like Parker scores? And it's just not really about that. And we're lucky because in some places it really is. And I think if we were across the water, I think that it would it would definitely be still really, really important. But I think that the market's shifted too. And I think that people are interested in something new. So they're interested in things that are fresher 
they're interested in making food and having wines that go with it. And the idea of this like wine pairing is 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 really important to the people, especially in our store. They come in and they'll they'll say, okay, well, I got this jamon iberico next door, and I got this cheese and gorocha and da, da, da. And what wine goes with it? And I'll probably most likely say sherry. <laughs> and like I'm like manzanilla, maybe. Is that a favorite for you? It is. Um, we we're really lucky in the sense that. We have, I was actually just doing a bunch of Excel sheets lately, and we've got about 54 sherries in the store. It seems like a lot. It is a lot, but it doesn't feel like that many. I mean, it's when you cover all the different types and styles, there's still room for more. I still actually want to add more to the list. Um, Does that mean that they're moving then? If you have 54 and you see... Yeah, they really are. I mean, we don't necessarily buy cases and cases of things, Mm. but, but... one, because I think we're a Spanish-focused store, it's sort of like a destination spot. Um, and, you know, we're keeping, we're meticulous in keeping everything in temperature control upstairs and downstairs. And we do. We really, we recommend it a lot. I've done a lot of sherry pairing dinners. There was a guy that came into a bunch of lobster one time, and he was going to do seven courses, and he wanted seven sherry pairings with lobster. And it was actually pretty interesting. And so people do. They do get groovy about it. They kind of like it, and we definitely bring it up. We're not shy about it. And we just open up that dialogue and have sort of specific gateway sherries that I think that work really well with people. So it kind of breaks this sort of mold that that a lot of people think of in those terms of those wines. And there's some some good price points that they meet in terms of not yeah. too spendy you know, for most of them. Definitely. Even the ones that are the drier styles, like the Finos and Manzanillas, it might be a half bottle, but people don't feel like you know $13 is too much to spend on something, especially if they went next door and they've got the little package of fried Marcona almonds and some olives, and they have sort of like this, this critical pairing and this like trifecta, and they try it, and then it's not so scary anymore. It's not like this sort of foreign thing, and it's it's sort of opening up the world in terms of different styles of wines and and getting trust and respect, I suppose, with with your customers, establishing rapport, which I think is it's something about retail that I love in the sense that, you know, you're in a neighborhood and you might Soho is very touristy. We do get a lot of people from all over the world, but we do have sort of a like a faithful fan base in the sense that we've got people that will come in you know, every other day or sometimes every day. And, you know, you see their family, you see their kids, you know exactly how they've been, you know, cooking and eating. And you know that in like some strange regard, you're sort of like a little minute part of like their life too. And it's kind of cool. And it's a rewarding thing when somebody kind of opens the door and they're walking their dog and they have no intention of buying wine, but they're like, hey, that wine with the scallops the other night, that was great. Thank you so much. And it's something it's kind of it's a more personal connection that I think that you get especially in retail, um, as opposed to maybe the dining scene, you know? I mean, it's 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 pretty cool. It's pretty cool that we can do that. But do you find that Sherry really does uh, benefit from that kind of food pairing for uh, a lot of Americans? I think that if people have never tried it before and and they're still I mean I think that Sherry Fest in in many different regards I think it's kind of like a like a ripple effect and we're not quite sure exactly what's going to happen next but I think that really opened up a lot of dialogue for people and just the ability to see it in a lot of of uh, restaurants now too um, I think that people's horizons are kind of opening up to it they're sort of becoming a little bit more conscious and and if they're not at least they've heard it at least they kind of know it's out there and it's like a thing and they're kind of getting curious about it maybe their friends have had it and if it's something that they've never had before, I always try to coach them through it because with Sherry, it's it's so much more of a conversation as opposed to assessing fruit. You're sort of talking more about texture. And talking about fruit is something that I've kind of tried to get away with anyways with customers because I feel like it's Something just, you're not doing as much of. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's it's, you can do it. You can totally talk about the blueberry and the the strawberry and the, all these aspects of fruit. But I think if you talk about wines in the sense of their food components, even if by no means are they going to actually eat and do exactly what you say, I think it gets them thinking about it. And so in terms of anything that I recommend, I'm always sort of like, okay, well, this um, this wine would go great with a like a steamed salmon. And if you have some sort of like lemony vinaigrette on the side and like just continuing on with that, it kind of gets them hungry in a way and it gets them thinking about the wine and it kind of makes them forget about the grapes or the wine or the style and it gets them thinking more about a concept or like a situation and for them in that regard they just it, it makes more sense it connects to more things in their brains and so with sherry i'm like well 
you know, it's going to be a little, if it's dry, it's going to be a little salty. It's going to be a little like, you know, dry. It's going to be a little flinty. It might have a little bit like an almond flavor to it. Um, but if you have it with X, Y, and Z, it's going to bring out, you know, maybe the sweetness in the ham. It's going to bring out the saltiness in the olive. It's going to pick up on that briny characteristic and it's going to be beautiful. And so they're like, okay, well, you know, I'll give it a shot. It's not so scary anymore. It's like you sort of have given them uh, a scene and they can sort of fulfill it. They can act it out on their own at their own whim. And what other regions of Spain have you been particularly drawn to over the last two years? I think one of the biggest regions that is starting to catch on a lot is definitely Galicia as a whole. But in terms of like, of, of reds specifically, I just, I've loved Ribera Sacra. I have. And I've I've really loved it for a long time. And recently we were able to actually come into a pretty big amount of wines from the region. Um Consistency is something that's probably an issue in terms of getting them all the time. But red wines that are being made out of specifically the great Mencia or Menthea are beautiful. Um, I personally drink a lot of lighter bodied wines and I like a lot of wines that are fresh and sort of like dance on your tongue and are just exciting and make you thirsty and you want to drink them. You find that more of that is coming from Spain now than when you first started oh God. buying Spanish Absolutely. Wine. Absolutely. Um, People still have that stigma that, you know, you work in Spanish wine. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, you must be just drowning in oak and Tempranillo and all these things. And it's not really like that anymore. It's definitely still prevalent. And I think that if we weren't in New York City and we were, you know, in middle America or something, that would still probably be the case. But I think for what we can get here, there is this whole other world that's opening up. And even outside of Galicia, too, even in Manchuela, um, down in Mentrida, there's a lot of wine. Madrid, too. There's a lot of wines that are coming out that are just this antithesis, this other style that are great, um, that are really palatable and friendly, and actually sort of they they build this bridge between what people are so commonly thinking, like, oh, Rioja, like this. And you're like, well, actually, okay, so what are you drinking these days? You know, if somebody comes in, they're like, I don't know anything about Spain. Okay, well, that's fine. What are you drinking otherwise? Oh, well, I'm drinking Dolcetto. Great. So let me recommend this. And like, you just sort of match sort of styles, acid levels, like types of fruit, sort of like cooler fruit, redder fruit, you know, things like that, spices, um, smoothness, texture, all those things, food pairing ideas with something that they 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 can grasp. So getting less hung up on historical appellations and more on mm -hmm. the texture and uh, kind of how wines interrelate globally. Totally. It, there still is a pretty big appreciation for Rioja that in terms of what we sell the most in our store, it is Rioja, actually followed by Cava. Rioja it seems and Cava. like you have a lot of Cava. Yeah, we do. Um, for a while, we had about 56. <laughs> that seems like a lot to me. I yeah. don't know. Are there? It was, it was a lot. There were a lot of different price points that I think are great. Mm -hmm. and Which also, is important with sparkling. It is. And there's a lot of really good Cava out there, too. And it, there's a lot of different styles. Um and I think working in Soho as well, there's a lot of people that on the weekends just love bubbles. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, that's, it's just huge. People Maybe, are doing... But for mimosas or something? Of course. Like mimosas, they're look, so yeah. is, is that part of the reason you need a range? Because you're like, hey, we need something that they're not really going to taste that's mm -hmm. going to go with orange juice. And then yeah. we need something that's pretty fancy for people who want to treat it more like a champagne. Yeah, we do. Around New Year's Eve, people come in and are like, where's your champagnes? And it, the question happens so much that you're finally just like, they're over there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, right. That, that, there. You just, yeah, it also starts with C. Yeah, it's like, it's fine. Just bubbles. Go for it. Have a great time. But you can sometimes have the dialogue with certain people and they come in and they've tried specific brands or maybe growers, if you're so lucky, of different champagnes. And so you can have a dialogue and say, like, do you want something that's a little fruity? Do you want something a little bit more bottle age? Um, just for instance, in terms of styles, like uh, one of my favorite producers is Gramona. And right now, because of the, the crisis, I suppose, and like the recession in Spain, one of their one of their cavas, which is a little bit more pricey, I would say, like thirty three dollars or so, but it's uh, it's their imperial, and it's been aged usually for about four years, surly before disgorgement. So the wine, when you taste it, it's beautiful. It's it's creamy and it's rich and it's got a lot of texture to it. Beautiful bubbles, nice color, and because people aren't drinking it that much in Spain, they're letting it age for longer. So you end up getting these these amazing values, I think, in a lot of ways. If if what you want is something that's a little bit more finessed or uh, fine-tuned or refined in a way. Do you think that you're seeing more ramifications of the financial crisis in Spain kind of make it through in the bottled form here? I mean, what other things kind of point out that Spain is not having the best of times at the moment? Well, I definitely feel in a way a little bit more push for like 
any and all wines from Spain to get here now. Like just, just from the supply side. Yeah, it's just it's it's. I think at one point I read that there were about four hundred different distributors here in the city, which is. That's a lot. Amazing. It's mind-boggling. And everyone has a Rioja. Everyone has, you know, like specific wines that, that they need for their accounts. And I feel like now more than ever, it's sort of like like an SOS in the sense that there are any producer in Spain that makes a wine that can get a bottle, that can get a label, get it out there, sell it. Somebody On will the drink it. international market, Absolutely. not the domestic market. No, no. And and. In fact, people from Spain are horrified at the prices of their wines here. They just think it's, like, ridiculous. But there is a three-tiered system, and, and you do have to sort of pay to get your wines over here. But I, I feel like there's – you're getting sometimes a little bit more quality, like, in the terms of, like, sparkling wine and whatnot because of people just not purchasing them in Spain. But I think that now, too, there's just – there's a huge saturation. And, you know, you're constantly sort of trying new wines. And as a Spanish-only store – Everybody that has any sort of Spanish wine, regardless of quality, wants to come in and is like, well, I've got this this wine that you've got to try. And you're like, no, I probably don't. <laughs> you know, you're like, it's 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 too much in the way. I mean, it's... the so def- you have to be a little choosy. You do. The, well, the floodgates opened. There were producers and importers, um, especially specifically from Jose Pastor and things like that, that were amazing. That was pretty eye-opening. It was this gear shift between what you would commonly see coming from Spain and now this new wave of things that... People in Spain were drinking, but nobody was really talking about it. There was this sort of like quiet appreciation for it regionally, but nobody felt like it was going to necessarily make that big of a mark other in other markets in the U.S. And I think that they do. I think that they're really important. So is that getting through to the consumers? Like, are are people tasting those wines and be like, I thought this was a Spanish wine. Isn't it supposed to be big? Or are they like getting it right away? Or how does it work out? Well, for us. We we try to have a personal relationship with everyone that yeah. comes in, and it's definitely a lot. Because it of is talking. a small, it is footprint. You, of a store. I, I could barely do a cartwheel in the store if I wanted to. I mean, it's that tiny. I can't do a cartwheel. No. <laughs> anyway, <so laughs> Please don't. You, maybe you could hire me. <laughs> You'd hit the Vegas Cecilia. It'd cause a lot of problems. <laughs> I get fired. But uh, but don't want that. You no, know, that'd be bad. Um, but uh, it's it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that there's a lot of writing. Uh, about wine, a eh? but a lot of writing recently that's kind of picked up on some pretty cool producers in Spain, um, even things like GQ magazine and and just different different publications that reach a kind of more contemporary audience, a younger audience, um, people that are just trying different stuff. A lot of people, including myself, they don't like to try the same thing every single night. Do you find that that's a younger person characteristic as a wine bar? Yeah, I do. I really do. And I think that I, I definitely am a catalyst to it as well. I think that I encourage that with people because I myself, I, I work in Spanish wine. That's what I do on a day-to-day basis. But when I'm out of work, I still want to keep up with the things that are happening out there. I don't necessarily always get to try all the wines from other countries that other people do. And so for me, it's it's relevant to stay focused and to to stay contemporary in the the biggest regard, which is you know going out to dinner and trying wines and paying for them myself and whatnot. But people do people do come in the store and they're like, okay, so last time I had this, you know what I like? Pick a couple wines and uh, that's it. Yeah, let me know. And and that's what you do. And I think that's great in a way because it gives you so much of a more you cast your net out and you you get so much of a greater sort of perspective. I would say. Um, and people are people are busy. They're not necessarily paying attention to everything, but they just they want to try different things that kind of just spark curiosity in them. So I think that that is definitely a trait with younger people. I think older people they sometimes get set in their ways. I suppose mm-hmm. um, you know there's still going to be people that come in and say, "My dad drank this Rioja every single day, and it's a great bottle." But those people can usually be persuaded to try different stuff too because. It's it's a more global market. There's a lot of things that can come at you at any direction, wine wise, and uh, it's it's great to sort of have that ability to encourage people to do that. Well, one of the things I've really noticed about you in the short time that I've known you is that you really do make the effort to taste as much as you can. Like you get around to the tables at the tastings, and you do go out to dinner, and you do buy your uh, things that you haven't tried, and you make you really make the effort. And I wonder if that probably brushes off on your customers. They probably get that vibe from you and then want, you know, feel more excited about trying things because you do yourself. You yeah, live that life. I do. I, I, I guess it was something that sort of sparked in me back in D.C. trying through a bunch of white wines and going through some white burgundies and just having this kind of like eye-opening experience of like, oh, my God, like there are some really beautiful wines in this world. And how great would it be to be the one that gets to drink them and then to talk about them too. And for me in the city, sometimes – 
I feel sort of like more of an ambassador to restaurants and to places and and things like that with my customers. When they come in, they're like, okay, well, I really want to try, going back to sherry, I really want to try this sherry. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, Terroir does this sherry happy hour. I don't know if they're CLR, but... They, it, they do, yeah. Okay, yeah. And so, and then I also, I always ask the 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 uh, reps and the distributors, I'm like, okay, so where is this wine? Like, who else is... is somebody, oh, you do? That's yeah. a thoughtful thing to do. I'm like, who's pouring this? Like, where is this wine being shown here, here, and here? And then I can tell my customers, hey, you know, if you really like this, go to Casamono, go to Belude Sud, go to these places, and you can try the wines there. It's kind of like a concierge for the wines. Yeah, I do. I feel kind of... Yeah, it's like an ambassadorship, a sense. But I think that helps to give another tier to the connection of it. And I think mm-hmm. that people, they want to know that. They want to know what you know. You're supposed to be the expert, and by no means am I an expert in in many things, but I do I do love what I do, and I love encouraging other people to have a great time with it and to just see the the jovial side, but the the fascinating side of of honest wines, of interesting wines. Do you find that Spanish people themselves are very loyal to Spanish wine? Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's really it's funny actually. We have we have little jokes like our staff is a mere three people, you know, including myself and one of the guys that does the deliveries and whatnot. And it's pretty funny, actually, when people come in from Spain. And I've sort of tried to figure it out for a while because I think that one of the things that we do in New York City, and I think you've talked about this too, is there's such a level of of education and sort of like making wine more scholarly than it is in so many parts of Europe where it is literally food slash beverage. And so for us, it's like, wow, well, how, how dare somebody think that, you know, this wine is exceptional. Like, oh, please, they don't even grow their own grapes. Like, but, but for them, it's like, no, but this is, this is my brand. And if you take yourself out of the situation we are here and you think there, so they're having a great dinner with their friends and their family and their husband or their wife. And that's what's important. That, that magical situation is what's creating their personality, their lifestyle, their like just character. And here it's like, no, you must talk about the grapes and the the élevage and the things. And so it's sort of like, we just sort of, of course we have a great time here, but I think that when people from Spain come over and they look A, at the prices of the wines and they just have no clue why the wine is five euros at home and $35 US on the shelf. And they're just sort of like, okay, well, I'm just going to buy this brand because I know this one and I've drank it. And it probably was passed down to me from you know my mother and my father and my grandfather drinking the same wine. Or it's a wine that they've just seen by their house a lot. And maybe it's over here now and they see this brand and that's, they're just, they're pretty loyal in the sense that, you know, if it works, why change it? And what surprises you about the market for Spanish wine in New York? Are there things you're like, huh, I didn't, I didn't, head scratcher. That's a good question. Um, I think that for a while, and I get it more now, I think for a while I was kind of shocked at how much the New York culture ignored Spanish wine, especially in, in, in higher quality restaurants and in fine dining. And when you would go in, you would see, you know, one Vega Sicilia from the 60s or something, and it was thousands of dollars. And then that was it. And it was as if like Spain just really did not matter at all or wasn't appropriate with food. And I can get that now because a lot of those restaurants do focus on a little bit more finesse cuisine. And if all you were going to get was this sort of like monster truck of a wine, of course, that's not going to go. So for me, it's kind of surprising when you do see things popping up in places that you never would have expected. Like, for instance, um, one of the producers that we work with exclusively in our store is uh, is a w- really small kind of micro winery uh, called Cellar La Montaña. And that winery, um, they make excellent wines. And it's a really pretty cool story. And I was shocked when I found out that uh, that Michael at Belud Sud, he started pouring one of the whites by the glass. And I went to reorder it. And I was like, it's out of stock. I'm like, it's our wine. I'm like, what? And then they were like, oh, well, no, it's being poured there. And I'm like, Damn, well, yeah, I think I actually said something on Instagram. I'm like, you glass poor thief. And he was right, like, oh, right, ha, ha. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. I'm like, well, that's cool. You know, good good for certain people to actually, good for certain producers to actually get out there and and sort of tell the story in a different way or get people's minds to change and wrap around new concepts, you know, and not be so stereotyped in certain kinds of wines, but to see that there's another side to things. Does it seem like everybody, though, you mentioned like not a lot of a lot of placements in a restaurant list, but does it seem like it's almost a requirement to have Lopez now? Yeah. Oh gosh. That blew up like crazy. Uh, we're lucky enough. We got a few bottles, um, 
Because you do have some. We yeah. do. We've got the current releases and we got a little bit of library. And we were lucky to get some of the library things before they had shifted importers and the prices started raising astronomically. And I was reading a story in the Wall Street Journal about how just the world is is sucking them dry in a sense that they're doing inventory on their stock in the actual bodega of Lopez de Heredia every 15 days because it's just like they cannot possibly keep up with this just like tornado of of just need of their wines and that for sure happened with the the rosé the 2000 the 2000 rosé was crazy it was that is not the most approachable wine i thought it was really cool but it's not necessarily like your typical Muga rosé or or fruity or Provençal style. It was it was very different. And people were importers and whatnot. They were saying, oh, we're going to have this wine forever. Don't worry. It's not going to come back for about 10 years, but we'll have plenty of stock. And so I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. And I started looking around on wine lists and every, every restaurant had that by the glass all summer long. And summer and spring. And it was crazy. I was like, this is not going to be around for a long time. I'm like, how are people a, getting away with this? But there was just this this cult status that this wine was elevated to. And people just, I don't even know if they particularly liked it, but it was sort of turning into this brand. But it was it was a cool brand. It was a brand that didn't feel super cheesy. And people just loved the story. And the wines are, are great. I love the history of it. I love that they're organically grown. I love many aspects of them holding these wines back until they personally have uh, faith that they are at the perfect drinking time. I think that that level of standard is not really seen that often, but um, it was crazy. It was seriously so crazy. Those wines, you just couldn't keep them in stock and the prices just kept raising and kept raising and people kept buying them. And I think that that's still happening now. And I don't know, we'll see how high the ceiling is going to go on that one, but I don't know. I don't know how much further it can go. Because I mean, you're talking about a winery where five years ago, they were selling wine from the fifties that mm. was sitting around and yeah. now... Like yeah. they don't have any rosé. Yeah, no, it's it's nuts. We we bought some old uh, from wine. Actually, we bought a couple different parcels. Um, right now, we have an old white from 1968 that we bought previous to a few uh, importer shifts. And so that wine, you know, 68. I guess it's it's like you know five in the 500s or so. And then we ended up getting some some reds, and we ended up getting like a 64. And all of a sudden, it was like almost double the price. And it was almost just like, you know, now it's Wednesday and it's going to be $300 more. And you're just like, holy crap. It's like you're watching a stock ticker. It like. is. It, it, it totally is. But there are those people that just like really get off on it. So now in terms of, of for whatever it's worth, I talk to my customers and I say, you know, I don't know if this is going to still continue on in the next like 30 years. But if I were you, these wines do taste outlandishly good with a bit more bottle age to them. So maybe by the 2001 now, if you've got some space, if you've got a little wine cellar, if you've got a closet that's cool and dry and dark, get a couple bottles, get some of the white and see where it's going to go. You know, I mean, I for sure definitely am not that great at cellaring wine myself. I just sort of, I'll pass it every day looking at it and it just sort of, you know, gnaws at me until I drink it. But I think that if, if people are able to, I think that that's definitely a great investment piece. I think that if they can just sort of hold on to it for a little while while the wines are $50. See where it is in 20 years. Maybe it's going to be magical. And that's not a lot of investment. And do you see a big divide between white and red for Spanish wine, just in terms of market reception or even in terms of producer uh, estimation or goals? People still are shocked when they realize that Spanish wine can include white wine. And in our store, we sort of have it divided. It's it's there's a counter, and one half of the store is red, and one half of the store is white and rosé. And people still come in and they say, "Well, I need a wine." I'm like, "Okay, well, white or red?" And they're like, "Well, Spain makes white wine." And I'm like, "Oh God, you know, we've got a lot to talk about." But it's interesting because a lot of those DOs are really young too. A lot of those DOs started, but you know, mere twenty something years ago, and so. The focus hasn't been on white wines from those countries. And I always have this dialogue and I say, well, you know, the country's pretty warm. It's a hot region. They, Of course they make white wines. They're drinking things that are thirst quenching and go well with seafood. And so it's definitely a conversation that I have with a lot of people. It's interesting too, because certain grapes from Spain definitely just sort of became like love childs in terms of, of modern um, of modern awareness. And and I would say Albarino was really the first white grape that people were knowing from Spain and nobody could really pronounce it that well. And God forbid they tried to say chocolate, but it was just sort of like this type of wine. And that just sort of grew astronomically. There's a lot of producers that are pumping out a ton of wine from that region. And there are a lot of growers that are making beautiful wines as well. But yeah, white wine is definitely, it's it's slow to catch up. But it's it's a dialogue. And depending on where your store is, if people don't know that you're focusing on Spain, 
that's something that you can just talk to them about because they come in looking for a Pinot Grigio or they come in looking for a Sauvignon Blanc. And you're like, okay, so are you looking for, you know, this, this, and this? And they're like, yep. And I'm like, okay, so it's going to have a different name, but you're going to drink Verdejo and it's going to be great. And and so that's definitely, it's, I don't know how eye-opening it is. I don't know if even after the person leaves, they even care. But I think that's something that's interesting in, in terms of a shift. Um but yeah, white wine is really, it's still lagging. It's still really, really lagging behind the Riojas and the Ribera del Tueros and the Priorats too. Um, trying to get somebody to buy a white Priorat, for instance, is like almost pulling teeth in the way. But I liken that to a lot of, you know, whites from Chateauneuf or whites from Hermitage and things like that. Those are always a little bit more forgotten about. But when you sort of open people's eyes to these wines, they're amazing. They're so beautiful. And I think it's it's worth the dialogue. It's worth, you know, exploring with people that come in. And you visited a producer that makes a pretty good white in Prairie Red because you went to Mustang and Jill recently. I did. What was that whole trip like and what was that visit like? So that was a really cool experience. I went um, to Barcelona for the Alimentaria, which is uh, the second largest food and wine fair festival um, in the world. And so I went um, as a representative for Despaña. And it was four days long, one of which, of course, the you know, city was on strike. And it was, it was really crazy. It was just sort of 4,000 different vendors, a thousand of which were wines on your feet for 10 hours running from pavilion to pavilion, which were so far away. I can't even explain. Um, But at the end of that trip, actually at the beginning, at the beginning of that trip, I was able to explore a little bit of Barcelona and I went to La Anima de V, which is an amazing natural wine store um, in Barcelona and got to meet with um, a producer that goes by the name of Mendal here. Sure. So, and I I knew that they were going to be close by. I didn't know if they were going to be there too, but lo and behold, he, uh, Lorano Cerez, he was there and he was showing his wines to um, a guy that owns a company in London called Indigo Wines, I think it's a, yeah. And so he was there and he's like, yeah, just come to the shop. We're going to open some wines, try them out. And that was amazing. Um, A, just to try the wines there in the country, current vintages, you know, not sort of traveling on a boat and being stuck in Fond du Lac and all this other stuff. But that was just incredible to see him. I mean, he's just this mad hatter of a guy that... Is he as vibrant as the wines? Jesus, even more so. I mean, he he literally, if you think of Alice in Wonderland and like the crazy mad hatter, you know, he's drinking wines and spitting them and calling everything brutal. And like, it was crazy. It was really cool. But he just has this conviction and that energy, like... You got to love who your winemakers are because that energy for sure is straight up in his wines. Um, but so during the actual fair itself, it was interesting. There was just, there was food and olive oil and tastings and all of these things, which were really, really eye-opening. And then at the end, I had one free day um, at a friend of mine, David and his fiance. We actually took a little road trip and we went out to the Penedis um, and we went through Castelroich. And so we got through the Coves and we hung out with Marcel and saw the wines and he's, crazy about his different terroirs. I mean, he has like like these boards with like every single kind of soil type and everything. And it was it was really, it was pretty incredible. Um, everything at the time was just about to start budding. So they were saying that all the, the, the actual rootstock was like kind of like tearing a little bit. And it was pretty phenomenal. It was like that one split second of life that was happening. And uh, from there, we drove to Prirat and we went to visit Mastangil in a car that had no GPS. So, <laughs> How long did that take you? Uh, we were late, and uh, the daughter who spoke English and Spanish, who was going to help us out, she had to leave. She had to go on a plane or something. So we were just so lost, and we finally got there. You know, we hadn't eaten lunch, which is, you know, to the shock of the Spaniards. And so we get to this, you know, we're following directions that say, like, turn left at the tree, and you're just thinking, like, what the heck? Um, and you finally get there. No, it was just, it was like, you know, you're trying in broken Spanish and no cats on at all to like ask bus drivers where and you're he's going. He's like, are you a cancer? And like, yes, I am. <laughs> you're like, yeah, it works, right? No? Oh, okay. Well, I guess back in the car. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so we finally get there and um, it was like the, the father, his name is Pedro, and he speaks no English at all. And he's kind of like Santa Claus, you know? He's got this contagious laugh and these big glasses and cheeks and he's going to show us around, but we're not quite sure what's happening now because there's sort of, I speak some Spanish, but he's kind of like, and we're tired and, and it's just like, it's kind of crazy. And so we go on this little tour and we're in this car and, you know, I'm trying not to fall asleep and I'm trying to really be awake and, and present. And then we go to what is basically like a little barn, like a little shack. And I'm like, oh dear, what is this? And there's barrels inside, but I'm looking around and it doesn't quite smell like a winery. It smells a little little sweeter, a little heavier, um, a little dense. And they're really small barrels, and there's not a lot of them. 
And we're looking around, and they're open with pieces of cloth on the top. And I'm like, this is interesting. You know, what is this? And so he gives us glasses, wine glasses, and we start tasting. And we're tasting through all of his vinegars. That sounds great. And actually, at the time, we didn't quite know what was happening looking back in retrospect. It was amazing because he makes... There's all these different rooms in this this sort of barn that were all different styles of Grenache-based vinegar. And it was just, it was really cool because you actually see the essence of that grape in such a different expression, depending on how it's been aged. And there was this one that I'll never forget. And he didn't, he wouldn't, he didn't want to disclose exactly which restaurant it was going for, but he had basically like a, a balsamico. And it was these tiny, tiny little barrels that had been aged, you know, over maybe 10 years or 15 years. And it was in the back and we tasted it and we'd take the glass and look up to the light and it was just thick. It was just so thick with this beautiful color and he drank it. It was almost like a syrup. And it was some restaurant, which I feel like he was saying it was in like Denmark or something of that nature. And that restaurant just bought all of those barrels. They were taking all of it and that's the only place it went. And I was like, can I get some of this? He was like, nope. (laughs) I was like, damn. (laughs) You know, so I was like, all right, well, fine. You know, it's the memory. Um, And then after that, we went and we tasted through some wines. um, And we actually went back up to his house and he had just like, you know, Arbequina olives from this trees and olive oil that they make as well and just bread, you know, just just grilled bread with olive oil and you just started tasting through some wines. And, you know, it was interesting because it was Pedro and then his sort of like right-hand farm guy, also named Pedro. And there was just this sort of like casual camaraderie, these two men, just very like gentle in their spirit, um, just making really beautiful wines and just very quiet about it too. And there was this peace that happens and pre-rets. It was one of my first loves, that that region, that aspect of it and getting to see it and getting to see the hills and the vineyards and just the sound of the wind at night that's coming through and it's quiet. It was it was remarkable. It was a really, really great experience. Getting home was really long, but it was just, it was worth it. I can't believe we actually found it, but it was great. And you brought a white uh, from a different producer today. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what we have here. Absolutely. So uh, this, I, I kind of touched on it before, but this is um, this is a producer that is brought in through Spanish Wine Exclusives. Okay. And um, so the company itself, or the the brand, I would say, is called Cellar La Montaña, and they're located in a little city that is all the way in the south of Spain, close to Alicante, and it's a city called Muro, um, close to Valencia, and they are making really small amounts of wine. And this wine in particular that I brought today is pretty much a 65 case production. It's really small. Um, and what they're doing, they kind of called this the micro vineyard project. And they're taking little tiny plots of grapes that are sometimes on the, the brink of extinction. And they're kind of resuscitating them, pairing, uh, paying all the, the workers fair trade and using organic viticulture and just kind of like trying to do the best they can with like this this little oasis down there. Um, and I guess what they're doing is getting an, enough attention. They actually got recognized um, by the Valencia Slow Food Movement, oh, wow. which is pretty cool um, in conjunction with the Slow Food Movement in Italy. And so this one um, is the 2009 Jure Albir. It's a white wine. Um, and this actually is made of three grapes. It's uh, Grenache Blanc, Macabeo, and uh, Malvasia. And they usually barrel ferment it in between eight to 10 months in French oak. Um, and I just think it's really beautiful. And in regards to sort of like a wintry white wine, I think it's just really, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing what you know about Spain. It's always exciting to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me. <laughs> Veronica Soler of the Spania Wine Market in Soho. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.